Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, plans for the deployment of the new aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth and her carrier strike group have been laid out. This really is evidence of hard power, but it also allows us to, to show our soft power, to show how we have our values, our interests and how we'll work alongside allies and partners. That's the first Sea Lord, Admiral Tony Radekin. We'll ask a former naval commander what the deployment means for Britain's security. Why has Australia just announced a huge increase in defence spending? We'll find out. What's the best way to train paratroopers to fight on the urban battlefield? We report from a new training facility installed at 16 Air Assault Brigade Barracks. We needed something that was a little bit high-tech, uh, and available for the section commanders to bring them in um, and, and train those repetitions. And we hear about new military training for young volunteers in Germany. We are very happy at the moment with the figures we have seen and all the volunteers who actually joined in the second quarter this year. And that is fine and we are happy with what we have seen so far. The first, a carrier strike group led by one of the country's two new aircraft carriers, HMS Queen Elizabeth, will set sail for the Indo-Pacific region next month, accompanied by ships and aircraft from the United States and the Netherlands. The £3 billion warship will set off from Portsmouth in the UK's largest signal of maritime and air power in a generation. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says it's about projecting global Britain. It's about saying, first of all, that Britain has this capability back. We all remember the Ark Royal and all those other aircraft carriers we had. It's about our place in the world and making sure we're an anchor in NATO, providing protection from aggressive actions by our adversaries. And speaking later in the Commons, he raised the issue of China's growing military power. Meanwhile, China is increasingly assertive, building the world's largest maritime surface and subsurface fleets. However, Ms. Madam Deputy Speaker, we are not going to the other side of the world to be provocative. We will sail through the South China Sea. We will be confident but not confrontational. The carrier strike group's deployment will take in more than 40 countries and last more than six months. Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy welcomed the deployment and said the new carriers will strengthen our maritime forces for decades to come. This deployment is important proof of our new British carrier strike capability, but let's not fall for the illusion that Britain is somehow able to project force everywhere in the world at once. Global Britain is a beguiling phrase, but this time-limited deployment will not significantly alter the balance of military power in the Indo-Pacific region, and surely we should focus our defence efforts on where the threats are and not where the business opportunities might be. Well, in reply, Ben Wallace said the NATO alliance was our cornerstone. The SNP's defence spokesperson at Westminster, Stuart MacDonald, wished the venture well, but then asked about priorities. He said, he said to me in the past that there's no point chasing one threat only to leave yourself exposed to another closer to home. And the Shadow Secretary mentioned it about the threat we have here in our own backyard. He knows that is the kind of tilt that I and my party want to see. So what assurances can he give us? Uh, that we aren't going to be left um, open, shall we say, here closer to home. 
In reply, the Defence Secretary said Britain had a number of capabilities to defend itself. Well, we're joined now by Tom Sharp, a former naval commander who served for 27 years, and Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank, Rusi. Uh, the Defence Secretary said working with forces from other nations was a key strength. Tom Sharp, how much involvement will there be? There's going to be a great deal, and I, and I think this is all about influence, the, the soft power, projecting, what, whichever, whichever buzzword you want to use, and many have been wheeled out. This is really about influence, and this deployment is going to do an awful lot of that. As, as we've said, 40 countries, 70, 70 engagements, uh, exercising with 13 different navies. This is really, really fundamental and, and a huge amount of influence as it goes along. It's not just about the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's about from forming up off Scotland um, before they even deploy and thereafter the ability to influence allies uh, and deter potential adversaries. Yes, you say uh, 13 different navies, Tom. What are the challenges of working with other nations on a deployment like this? They're not dissimilar to the challenges any task group has when it first forms up. First and foremost, uh, you have to be able to communicate. And that, that sounds very sort of basic in a, in a modern age where we're all largely connected. But but imagine, um, you know, you've got Skype, MS Teams, you've got someone's going to turn up with emails at some point and they've all got to be able to talk to each other in a secure manner. And that, that takes quite a lot of time because you've got, to, you've got to have insecure comms, you've got to have secure voice comms, you've got to have data links, you've got to have chat nets that are secured. So there are all these, all these pieces of the jigsaw need to come together just so that you can talk to each other before you can actually do anything, before you can uh, integrate and fight. You've got to be able to talk to each other. So as, as navies come and go, uh, that'll be the first challenge each time. Professor Michael Clark, which will be the most sensitive parts of the deployment? Well, at the moment, everyone is looking, of course, at the South China Sea um, because it will infuriate the Chinese. Uh, I mean, they'll pretend that all this is irrelevant. They'll talk about it as a sort of post-imperial um, knee-jerk reaction. But in reality, it will infuriate them um, because this is a it's partly a freedom of navigation operation. And the Defence Secretary is very clear that we will, the, the task group will be going to the South China Sea. But of course, he won't announce where it will go until a bit nearer the, the time when it gets there because it will have to take account of political conditions. And the big question, of, of course, is, you know, would it go into the Taiwan Straits? Uh, well, if it were to do that, then that would be uh, pretty sensitive. <clears throat> and of course, it might be doing it at the time of, a, of a, a Taiwanese crisis. So you would want to leave that decision until quite late on. The, the other thing is that if this is, is a you know, six, eight, eight month tour, it's a fair old bet that this task group will be diverted to do something else. It'll, it'll go through a, an area or it'll be close to an area where there's a natural disaster. And so it'll divert itself and then probably use its helicopters rather more than its F-35s for, for doing anything. So I think as we see this, this go forward, John Healy in the comments, he said, this is like a gap year tour. You know, this is the, mm. this is the carrier on its gap year before it gets down to some real work. Well, um, it will be a very interesting gap year. And I, th I bet we'll see some, uh, some diversion of the, of the whole process to address, you know, whatever it's going to go through in the meantime. Yeah, and Tom Sharp, some of the question marks over the carriers have been about how vulnerable they may or may not be to attack. Can you just explain the role of the carrier strike group in this? First and foremost, it's a, it's a formidable group of ships, nine, nine different warships. Uh, and just to add to, to Michael's last point, their ability to, to, to separate them, one has an image of the, of, the, of the task group photo where they're all gathered together for, that, for the dreaded FOTEX. That's completely the wrong image to go away with here. 
They'll try and keep the carrier on track, both literally and metaphorically, but with nine ships at your disposal, you can really siphon off assets to thousands of miles away. It doesn't need to be even in the same ocean and still carry out your tasking. Now, in terms of vulnerability, um, there, there are some. There's no getting away from that, but then going to sea is a dangerous business. Uh, I operated in the, in, the, in the Persian Gulf on numerous occasions where had, had we come under attack, if the Iranians had pressed go on any given day, we would have been in real trouble very, very quickly. That didn't mean we didn't go. Of course we went. Mm. So there's a vulnerability inherent. So let's not overplay the, the sort of the, the hypersonic missile um, lab. The, the lab view of that is that the carriers are sitting ducks. The reality is, is very, very different. It's very difficult to move these missiles around. It's very difficult to target the ships. And there are significant defences in between them and us that start ashore and end up at sea. So it, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not the sitting duck or the white elephant that, that people would have you believe. And Michael, you heard questions in the House of Commons there about defence priorities. How does this deployment fit into Britain's other defence priorities? Well, it's part of the idea of persistent presence. And the first sea lord was, was very clear in all the statements that he's made around the integrated review that the carriers give Britain the ability to, uh, as it were, show how, how powerful that persistent presence may be. That's not the same as stationing ourselves in the Indo-Pacific, but being persistently there. This is a symbol of that and a, a, you know, and a, a part of the reality as well. But the Defence Secretary was also very clear that the, the essence of our defence must, must all always be the, the Atlantic and the transatlantic relationship and that's fundamental and so what the what this is trying to do or is part of a, a strategy that tries to guarantee that fundamental presence in the transatlantic area in the North European Northwest European area but show that we can be we can take opportunities to express our military partnership with lots of nations around the world in that respect the carrier is a very good way of doing that. And Tom, practically, how big a challenge will it be to stay on deployment for this long away from home? The sustainability of the deployment itself is relatively foreseeable, uh, apart from a major, a, a major diversion. And, and as, as we've said already, you know, no, I've never deployed and stuck to the plan. It just doesn't work that way. It, it's the diversions that can cause headaches, particularly with uh, mechanical failures and stores, etc. Um, but it is a large group of ships and, and, and the, the group logistics officer on board the carrier will have their work cut out, absolutely for sure. But like I say, it's when the, it's when the big change happens. It's when sewers blocks and they have to come the long way around on the way home, for mm. example, or something significant happens in the Black Sea and, and they're now in the Eastern Med, really wondering whether to go through the sewers or not. Uh, that's when logistics suddenly start becoming uh, very, very challenging. But if it stays to the plan, then, they, then, then part of that plan is the logistics. Plenty more to report on, I'm sure. Tom Sharp, thank you very much for your time today. Michael Clark, do stay with us. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. 16 Air Assault Brigade is the British Army's global response force, able to deploy and fight anywhere in the world within hours. One of the scenarios they could face is an urban battle, and to help them prepare, a new cutting-edge training facility has been installed at their barracks in Colchester. Simon Newton's been to take a look. This is not a basic urban training facility. This is to take already good soldiers and, and teach them the advanced side of that. For these paratroopers, it's a game changer. Inside the home of 16 Air Assault Brigade in Colchester, one of the most high-tech urban battlefield simulators anywhere in the world. 
Major Murray McMahon commands C Company 2 Para. Our skill set is well tested, our soldiers are well trained, uh, but the desire from, from 2 and 3 Para came up to have a better urban training facility. Uh, so we looked at all the options uh, and what they wanted to do was have something on their doorstep, all weather, with the ability to do repetitions. Uh, just like a boxer would hit a bag and a, and a golfer would hit a golf ball over and over and over again. We needed something that was a little bit high tech uh, and available for the section commanders to bring their men in um, and, and train those repetitions. The facility is about the size of an average five-a-side pitch and within it are scores of movable walls, making it easy to change the configuration, move a door or change a room layout. A system of cameras above records everything that goes on. The instructor is able to control the whole immersive experience from a tablet. Most of the world now lives in urban environments, which is why it's so vital these paras practice this sort of fighting. This facility can be reconfigured to be a, a myriad of scenarios, and then they can lay on sounds, anything from gunfire to IED explosions, even people screaming. They can then look to see how precise their fighting really is, essentially bringing the science of human behaviour to soldiering, and all of it watched from these cameras above. The soldiers fire paintball rounds and to make it even more realistic, enemy troops wearing protective kit can be laying in wait, ready to launch an ambush. The facility cost around half a million pounds and was built by a specialist company run by former British soldiers and Royal Marines. Andy Hunter is from the firm. One of the things that we've learned as, uh, as veterans is if something's too complicated and the technology that has been used previously in years gone by, if technology is too complicated to use, it won't be used. So they'll just fling it to the side or, you know, it's too difficult to use, it's too complicated to set up. If you make it as easy as possible and you know, it's so much easier for the, the troops to use, they'll use it more. The feedback we've got from the, the troops that are using it on the ground is, it, you know, it's fantastic, so easy to use and they've never had that much physical tiring sort of run through training all the time I mean because because it's easy to use they're coming onto a facility that's on on base they can come in and use it hours upon hours upon hours battle over the paratroopers move to a teaching room next door in here they review their performance step by step room by room yeah obviously You've gone in that way, you've got this guy coming in that way, so he's going to take that threat, isn't he? Private yeah. Finn Doherty is from 2Para and has been using the simulator. You know, something like this, you could do it a hundred times over, change all these walls around, but every time it is different. And, you know, to keep brushing up on these skills, like, you can never, you can never do too much, you can never prepare yourself too much, do you know what I mean? So it's definitely, definitely a good thing to have here. The firm behind this have supplied similar training facilities to the Royal Marines and the US military and there are plans to upgrade this simulator even further. The traditional wooden targets replaced with remotely operated mannequins, each fitted with sensors to record every soldier's fire rate and accuracy, all part of a drive to bring more tech to training and make the British Army's airborne elite even more effective. That report there from Simon Newton. Now, Australia has announced a huge increase in defence spending. The country plans to spend hundreds of millions of dollars upgrading four military bases on its north coast. It will also expand military exercises with the United States. The increase comes against a background of rising tension with China. At the weekend, the Australian Home Affairs Secretary Michael Pezzullo told his staff in an Anzac Day message that the drums of war are beating and Australia should continue to search for peace while bracing 
bracing yet again for the curse of war. Professor Kerry Brown is the director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London. Before that, he was professor of Chinese politics at the University of Sydney. He told me what lay behind the increase in defence spending. Well, I think Australia is feeling vulnerable. I mean, it's always felt vulnerable in a way. I, I mean, it's got, I believe, 27,000 people in its navy to patrol one of the world's you know, kind of biggest territories. So its alliance with the United States is extremely important for its security. And so I think that a lot of what it's trying to do in recent times has been to demonstrate to the United States that it's a loyal ally. It's always fought with the United States and Afghanistan and elsewhere and try to kind of really get a sense that it's not isolated and vulnerable to an increasingly assertive and powerful China in its neighbourhood. And what has led to this deterioration in relations between Australia and China? I think it's just an impact of China's growing economic influence in Australia. China since 2010 has been the biggest uh, kind of trader with Australia. It's been the biggest exporter of Australian iron ore and also increasingly of foodstuffs. It's a big investor in Australia. It's got enormous kind of influence there that people feel is uh, hard to classify. Uh, there's a great big debate in Australia at the moment about whether Chinese are trying to influence Australian politics. It's not very clear. There's an extremely robust debate amongst political and public figures in Australia about this. And I think that that has created this sense of confusion and that Australia needs to strengthen its role in the region and strengthen its ability to defend itself. But you have to remember that you're looking at a country of, what, about sort of 24 million? Uh, very wealthy country, of course, but facing a region in which, you know, it's got Indonesia, China and others that are often very, very dissimilar to it with far, far, far more people and now increasingly powerful economies. And how likely is a de-escalation in the language between the two countries, do you think? Well, it's theatre at the moment. I don't mean that dismissively, but, you know, to talk about preparing for war. I mean, this is not really what we're talking about. We're talking more of a kind of psychological war in a way. And it looks to me as though Australia's losing that at the moment. I mean, it's very, very shaken. Uh, its current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been saying, you know, sometimes what has been regarded as pretty inflammatory things about China, and then at the next day kind of backing away. And I think if you were sitting in Beijing as a politician looking at this, you'd sort of not see it as a sign of strength, but as confusion. I thought, you know, it would be better for Australia to make its mind up about what kind of relationship it wants with China, either to have complete kind of hands off and, you know, have nothing to do with this country. That's not easy and it will be a massive economic price. Or to basically be coherent about the red lines of where it wants to deal with China and where it doesn't. And over the last few years, that hasn't been clear either. So it's a very confusing time at the moment. If, as you say, each side is playing some kind of psychological war at the moment, what do you think China is trying to get out of it and what do you think Australia is trying to get out of it? China's got very transactional interests. I mean, it wants Australian iron ore, it wants Australian beef, it wants Australia as a place for some of its students to go to, and that's continued despite the current nasty atmosphere. It wants a place for people to tour, I mean, large numbers of Chinese tourists before the uh, recent pandemic, it wants, you know, a kind of economic opportunity, a place to invest because it does respect Chinese, uh, Australian institutions and the stability and predictability they give. 
Australia, well, actually, it's quite simpler what it wants from China, too. It wants money. It wants, you know, economic opportunities. It wants markets. You would look at this and say, this is a pretty straightforward deal. It's not something to get very complicated about. But somehow, because I suspect of Australian sensitivity and vulnerability about their security position and their own identity, uh, I think this has become extremely complicated for what, in essence, should be a relatively straightforward relationship. Professor Kerry Brown there. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. And Michael, what issues does this tension throw up for Australia's allies? Australia's part, of course, of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, along with New Zealand, the UK, the US and Canada. Yes, and it is becoming quite difficult for all of the allies because, I mean, what we're seeing here over the last 10 years is China's um, assertion of its rights in Pacific Asia. I mean, in, in the old days, not so long ago, uh, the China of uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping, for instance, was all concentrated on domestic issues. And since 2012, Xi Jinping, uh, he's certainly got plenty of domestic issues to worry about, but he's very assertive in, as it were, in the foreign policy and military sphere. And uh, what Australia is reacting to, and as Kerry Brown was saying there, where Australia is finding it difficult to, refi- to define the relationship is similar to the problems that the United States has as well, which is to say, how are we going to react to the way in which China is asserting itself uh, in, the, in the Pacific area and in regional terms? And that does pose a problem. And there's already quite a lot of pushback, not just from Australia and the United States, but look at the, um, the Five Eyes Intelligence Network shouldn't be overplayed. It's very important in intelligence terms, but it's nothing like a military alliance in any other respect. But what is developing is this what's called the Quad, which is between the United States, Australia, Japan and India. And that that quadrilateral security arrangement looks as if it's going to become really quite important and maybe really quite tangible in the next few years. And that really has been created or has been reinvigorated by Chinese assertiveness. And so you really can see a a development here of almost old fashioned balance of power politics that look very mid 20th century-ish, which is not the way we feel it here in Europe. But if you're sitting where Australia and New Zealand sit or Indonesia for that matter, it's beginning to look very like the middle of the 20th century. Michael, stay with us. Well, as we've been hearing over the last few weeks, the Integrated Defence Review set out a vision for the future of national security, increasingly focused on the information domain. Brigadier Stephen Crossfield is the Army's Chief Data Officer and the man charged with overseeing the Army's digital transformation. He was speaking this week at the IISS think tank and our reporter Rosie Layden caught up with him. The British Army will have to digitally transform whatever happens. So it's it's not like a transformation um, where we're on a burning platform. It's more about recognising that the future of digital warfare and a digital asymmetric army, which is what the integrated review has um, said we're going to deliver, requires transformation to get to that end state. And we're talking about transformation. The army is used to evolving, it's used to change, but this is something on another scale. In terms of the amount of change, well, I think it would be arrogant of the army not to recognise we're in a fourth industrial revolution and that technology is increasingly becoming part of the change driver for society. You just have to look at artificial intelligence, machine learning, analytics, data and the importance of data to us, you know, the new oil within the machine, as it's often called. This is going to happen. So it would be arrogant of the army not to accept that it's got to make that change and move to a digital, uh, new digital footing. And then lastly, I suppose, it's our adversaries. You know, we're already seeing 
our major adversaries using data, cyber, um, in terms of a form of attack, but data more broadly to underpin the ways they would seek to compete with us and the ways they would seek to undermine, you know, what we hold dear in, in the Western world. So it's it's out there, it's coming, and the army's going to get ready for it. Most people don't really get excited about data, but the way you put it, talking about it as the new oil in the machine, uh, can you try and explain why it's so important in terms of operational advantage and, and, and real-life battlefield examples? What, what can it do yeah. for us? Once you bring large sets of data together and you apply machines to that data, which are much better at us at sensing patterns, finding insights, you begin to learn things that no, no human even thousands of people sat in a room would never be able to identify. So that's really exciting because that, you know, that in terms of unlocking our adversaries' weaknesses, for example, understanding where to attack um, and where to defend and where to avoid is a real see- a game changer for the way that warfare is evolving at the moment. And people talk about the trade-off between traditional mass and uh, digital. How do you see that equation? To me, it's not so much about the trade-off and um, it's about the fact that you know the digital environment that we're going to fight in will require you to digitalize yourself and go through digital transformation to be able to operate anyway. So, so, so you can't really choose to stay as an analog army in the future world and just have your know, mass to solve a problem because it's so complex, it's so multi-domain, and it's so interconnected via all the networks. And with data running over it in in such large amounts. You, you're missing the point, I think, if you try and you know, not change and maintain mass. That was Brigadier Stefan Crossfield speaking there to Rosie Layden. A new scheme in Germany is offering young volunteers seven months military training. In return, the recruits must offer five months service over a six-year period. Duties will be restricted to home defence and include military assistance during large-scale emergencies. From Herxter in northern Germany, Rob Olver reports. Germany has a new kind of soldier. Young and eager for military experience but not so keen on long-term commitments. They've all joined a newly launched scheme called Your Year for Germany. We are focused on different audience. Brigade General Torsten Gerstorf commands land forces in North Rhine-Westphalia. People who actually do not want to join the army for a period of four years. They want just to join, for example, for one year. Very good, very good, very good. Like Britain, Germany is expanding its home reserve forces. Attracting short-term reservists is only part of what will be a wider overhaul. I think it's a really good test to see how fit I am. At a barracks in the remote northern town of Herxter, Christoph is on a seven-month basic training course. If successful, the 25-year-old from Duisburg will become a German army reservist. But in the following six years, Recruits like him will have to spend no more than five months on duty. I can take this five months in pieces over the six years or in bigger or smaller pieces where I go on more or less. For reservists, this flexible arrangement makes it easier to pursue other careers or studies. And it's popular. 1,000 spaces advertised this year have already attracted nine times as many applicants. The training's quite tough, says 20-year-old Maximilian, but it's satisfying when you've achieved something. 
The short-term reservists will provide military support during natural disasters like floods or forest fires. They won't go overseas, but in times of international tension, they'll have to protect critical infrastructure. Germany's overhaul of its domestic reserve forces comes amid heightened tension with Russia. One of the key issues will be that we will increase our numbers of home defence forces. We will introduce a new level uh, we had in the past, but we actually cancelled after the Cold War. It will be now reintroduced. It's the regimental level. As you compare with the overall number of people we have to recruit, it is a small part, but it is an important part as long as the territorial reserve is concerned. I think it's just to spark the flame and that's what we count on. We are really looking forward and we are very happy at the moment with the figures we have seen and all the volunteers who actually joined in the second quarter this year. And that is fine and we are happy with what we have seen so far. The new recruits' first tasks could include supporting Germany's COVID vaccination programme. Rob Oliver reporting there from Huxter. Uh, Michael Clark, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Yes, it's a bit like the old idea of con in the years of conscription, where you could choose to do a civilian, take a civilian role instead. The, the, the issue for them is that skills fade is quite severe, so they may find themselves filling sandbags rather than doing anything else. But it's a useful way to harness people's sense of citizenship and patriotism. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time today. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.